Trevor Ashley follows a long line of Australian stage larrikins, including Roy Ream, Barry Humphreys and Reg Livermore, all huge talents who created unique performance personas, giving us Mo Makaki, Dame Edna and Betty Blockbuster. All of them celebrated the outrageous and all that is particular about our culture. Trevor Ashley continues this biting and hysterical piss take, serving it up to us in flamboyant and finely realised entertainment such as Fat Swan, Little Orphan Trashley and Body Bag. Accompanying these pantomimes, Ashley has also enjoyed worldwide success with his one-man shows, Liza on an E, Liza's Back is Broken and uh, a tribute to Shirley Bassey. Diamonds are for Trevor. He's also proved himself on the musical theatre stage with acclaimed performances in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Hairspray and Les Miserables. Intent on embracing many roles, Ashley also wears the titles of producer, director, writer and musician. Stages sat down with Trevor shortly after his recent hit for the Sydney Gay and Lesbian 40th Anniversary Mardi Gras, a variety show at the Opera House titled Trevor Ashley's Mardi Gala. Now, look, um, it was, uh, um, I believe, 1998 when you made your professional debut mm-hmm. at the Sydney Cabaret Convention, which is um, 20 years ago now. It is 20 years. Isn't that horrifying? Which is a long time, but it's sort of a, it can be a short time in showbiz too. Do you, do you pinch yourself about what you've achieved? Sometimes, and then sometimes I think, oh my God, I haven't done anywhere near enough. Right. Sometimes I think I haven't done half the things I wanted to do. And sometimes I think, God, I've done well. But most of the time I think I could do a lot more. I should have done more. Well, I, I think I've known you for... Um, well, I, I know that I've known you for that, that length of time, 20 years. I remember seeing mm. you at that cabaret convention and thinking, oh, my God, this kid who, <laughs> who has um, so much confidence and self-belief in himself. And I've always stood back and observed you as having that. And, you know, God, many of us are buddy kill if we could buy that in a bottle. Yeah. Um, is that confidence easy or, or do, you, do you, behind the scenes, do you doubt yourself about, um, about what you're doing? I think because I, we never see that. I, I have doubted myself a few times, but not often. I think I doubt respect. That's the thing I doubt. I sometimes feel like I'm an industry joke. Really? Yes. What, what, what makes you think that? Because I'm so ridiculous and because I do drag and because it's not legit and it's not, you know, I don't know. That's how I feel. And yet I've been told by many people that that's absolutely not true. But I think that's, that's the nagging fear in my head. Well, I guess we've all got those, um, those Jiminy Crickets that sit on our shoulders yeah. that, um, that tell us all sorts of things that uh, probably aren't true, but because of a, a, a lack of... Um, well, I'm not going to say a lack of confidence in your case, although that probably is what no, we're that's probably what it is. At, really. Like, I mean, that's I think my only my only thing. But I think you know, you you want to be seen as I want to be seen as respected and 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 stuff in the industry. I think it's just a funny thing because of what I do and and how I've done it. Is I've done it so unconventionally that I think that's the thing that people um that people have had trouble with, I think. Well, yes, uh, unconventionally in that um, your trajectory to where you are now hasn't been one which people have been able to predict. You've always come up with these very original 
concepts to put you in work or to create work for yourself, leading from, you know, after the Cabaret Convention, I think, was that the Trevor Ashley Arena mega musical? Yeah, Trevor the Arena. Well, there was I Need a Life first, which Margie D... Well, this is quite funny. Margie D. Ferranti was a judge for that cabaret convention that I performed at. And she said, I'll help you, I'll help you put a show together. I thought, oh, good. So next thing you know, I had the flyers out. It was directed by Margie de Ferranti. She said, I never said I directed it. I said, oh, sorry. She said, but now my name's on the flyer, so I've got to. And so was, she did. And that's the beginning of a beautiful and friendship. And that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful 20-year friendship too. Um... She'd see me at the Fame auditions. That's how we met, and then she judged me at the cabaret convention. Um, the Arena Mega Musical. Am I right? Was that at the Midnight Shift, or was that Pop no, Princess? No, no, no. That was Pop Princess. It was later. That was the second Pop Princess. First time I did Arena Mega Musical was actually at the Stables. Right. And um, it was a funny show. That was my second one. That was a good one. Trevor the Arena Mega Musical because it was around the time of Grease the Arena Spectacular and <laughs> I think I was working with you at the time of uh, Pop Princess maybe when you were going to the shift and, and I was just mm. in awe of this this kid 18 year old kid who was going to self-taught everything was going to produce this show market it write it yeah. and, and did, did you direct it as well and perform in it I think Pop Princess 1 was directed by somebody and we had William Forsyth as the choreographer. Well, William Forsyth, who's, who directs, who choreographs Kylie Minogue amongst yeah, many know. other people. I mean, the chutzpah. I know, in, can you believe it? contacting William Forsyth. It was Forsyth. pretty crazy. And then in 2005, Pop Princess 2, so I was 25 by that point, I was old. Um, and that was at the shift and that was, I directed that one with Cameron Mitchell choreographing. And... Um, Still Mitzi McIntosh on costumes. Oh, fantastic. Was, yeah. He did both both shows in the costume department. She designed them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, back in those days. It was so funny to go back and think about that because I'd already started drag by that point but still was trying to do other things. So so the, the start was sort of the cabaret form. Um, yeah. And then, then you did have a, a bit of a career as Cleopatra Coupe yes. in, in the Sydney drag mm. uh, scene. Um, how was Cleopatra Coupe born and, and what got you into drag? Was that something that you'd always want to do? It was a cabaret thing, actually, that I was doing my show. Um, I was doing the Arena Mega Musical up at uh, Glen Street at Sawley's in the restaurant. And they booked a show because I'd just done it in New York. And it had really great reviews. But they renamed it From New York With Love, which had nothing to do with the show, but that was their marketing. Um, and one night at Glen Street, as a 20-year-old, I think I was, um, Portia Turbo came to the show. And Portia said, have you ever done drag? And I said, no. She said, come down and see me. You should think about it. So I went down and I went to Caesars, down on Parramatta Road. Oh, right, yeah, that's... Yeah. The old gay RSL, as we called it. Um, and Portia was performing, and I said, oh, Portia, I'm Trevor, remember it? She said, yes, Queen. When are you going to come and get into drag? I went, oh, well, I've never really done it. And she said, well, come on. Tuesday night, come to the Albury. I worked there on a Tuesday, and it's, it's empty in the dressing room that night. It's just me and Vanity and Farron. And we all do our makeup very differently, so come down and watch. So I went down to downstairs at the Albury, 
And I watched those girls put their makeup on. And, and the funny thing is, it was only much, much later in my career when anybody had ever done my makeup except for me. It was always me doing it. Um, and one night, after a few weeks of being down there and trying to put on makeup, Portia looked at me and went, Right, and got up and walked into this huge cage that they had filled with costumes and said, that'll fit you, that'll fit you, on you come, you're doing a number. I was like, what am I going to do? She said, do anything, you, you know, look at my spot CD, what on there can you do? And I went, okay. So I went up and unlined, next thing you know, she said, right, that was good. You need a name now. And I'd wanted to be Gingivitis, that was my <laughs> original drag name. And Portia was like, no, you can't be that in The Singing Queen. You're too, um, you're too glamorous for that. You're too good. You need something a bit better. But who, who do you like? And I said, oh, I've always liked Alexis Carrington off Dynasty. Dynasty. And she said, oh, well, that's good. Who would you be? I said, what about Alexis Coupe? I thought that was funny. And she went, no, no car jokes. I'm the car joke. I went, all right. I like Cleopatra. She said, that's good, Cleopatra Coupe, that's who you are. Simple as that. Simple as that. I was Cleo Coupe, Cleopatra Coupe. Um, and Portia made me go and do Polly's Follies after she said to me, right, you're going to pay me money and I'm going to make you dresses. So I went up and I paid her money and I learned how to start sewing. I, quite, I can't sew still. But Portia made me gowns. And next thing you know, I was down at Polly's Follies at the Albury doing Sunday night spots. And um, from there, I think within about six months, I was six nights a week doing it for a living. I was teaching singing at the time and I had to stop because I couldn't get up the next morning after finishing at the clubs at two and three in the morning. Well, I guess that's, that's the, um, the time when drag performers are, are working, isn't it? You're sort of, it's that, that late night, Especially early morning. Especially then when before lockouts and everything. I mean, you know, I do... Slightly earlier in the earlier parts of the week, but from Thursday night onwards, you know, I'd be. Remember on Thursdays, I used to do Yippie I Go at nine, nine o'clock. Yep. Run down the road and do the shift at 10.30 and 11.30. I'd jump on my scooter and I'd go over to the Imperial and I'd do midnight one and two. And that was Thursdays. And it was busy, Friday nights busy, you know. Um, how long did you drag for? Five was that consecutive years. But you were, you were also somebody... Uh, look, I imagine most drag performers or, or drag queens... What, what's the correct term? Anyway, oh, either, I think. Those either. are both good. Um, get into it, and that's, that's their, their full-time career. Mm. You were also able to uh, carve a, a career as an actor and as a yeah. cabaret performer alongside... Uh, your existence it was like my day job was Cleo Mm. and that was quite fun because it was really a day job and I didn't have to have an actual day job because I couldn't have survived on the money I was making in cabaret or you know it was good it was great yeah so there came a point uh maybe at the end of your drag time drag career well I don't think you've had an end of your drag no. time, have you? No. But, uh, but you became Trevor, Ash- Trevor Ashley. You embraced your own name rather than Cleopatra Capay. That was in Priscilla. That was when you started Priscilla. Yeah. Yeah. I basically went, okay, I've got this role. 
they're going to put it in the program as Trevor Ashley. I think Cleo needs to die, basically. So it just became... It's too confusing... To an audience, yeah. To everybody, if it suddenly is Trevor Ashley, is Cleo Coupe, is misunderstanding in Priscilla. Mm. So one of the names had to go, and I... Courtney Act was keeping Courtney Act, and I thought, I'm going to Trevor Ashley, I'm going to go be a boy. That just meant that I could be a boy. It wouldn't be, you know... I mean, look, lots of people have done it. Lily Savage, of course, was Lily Savage for a thousand years before she was Paul O'Grady. That mm. people knew, you know. Mm. Um, but, yeah, so I just sort of went... When it, with Priscilla, that was... That was when she changed. That's when and she did no, did not exist so much anymore. Um, did you have some sort of uh, uh, farewell event for Cleo, or how did you say I goodbye? I had a Cleo's last night in the pubs. Took out ads and everything, and we had this fabulous night. I was working at Stonewall. It was a Saturday night, and I was doing a show with Shelley Legs Diamond and, and Charisma. And we were there at Stonewall, and. We roped up a whole area and all these friends came along to see sort of Cleo's last night performing in the pubs. And, you know, two weeks later I was in full-time rehearsals for Priscilla. Yeah, your first... Um, was first, it your first big commercial musical? First commercial musical, yeah. Right. Apart from the ones I got fired from. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, that was a Burt Bacharach show, wasn't I it? I was. I brought that up the other day on that other interview with One Plus One. I wonder right. if it makes the cut. All right. Well, you've started it now. We might as well talk about it. Um, we don't yeah. have to go into great detail. No, no, but no. The, but there was a review, uh, I remember, on In Sydney, created about Burt Bacharach songs um, called What the World Needs Now. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and you were cast originally in a, um, was it an MC type role? Yeah, it was Cupid. Cupid, yeah. And Cupid was this god of love. I had the opening number, which was What the World Needs Now, of course. And I was, I was young, I was 22 or 23. And um, I was so excited because Paul Capsus turned it down. Oh, right. That's how I got it. They had Paul Capsus, then Paul ended up not being able to do it. Something came up. And so I did it. And what's funny is um, we, you know, we did these workshops and I did all the workshops and I was, I think I was very good in it. I think I was playful and young and a little bit chubby and a little bit, I mean, I was a lot less than I currently am now, but um, I was, you know. You were, you were very much a Cupid. Bleach blonde yep. and very good Cupidy and funny and sort of that, that was my shtick in that. And they basically said to me before canning me from the show, of which I had first right of refusal, by the way, that they were going to go in a completely different direction with Cupid, that Cupid would now be a sort of demigod of a body and a, all of that. They got rid of me. Were you in rehearsal? I'd done two workshops and it was about to start rehearsal for the full commercial right. run. Right. Um, what does that do to a performance? Oh, killed me. Um, yeah. Killed me. Yeah. Especially then. I hadn't done anything yet. And you were doing lots of auditions. I was doing and lots. And back on a lot of I things. I was getting really close and then not getting it a lot. Um, Why do you think that was? I just... Too young. And you're such, you're such a unique talent. It's hard to put you into... 
I think, you know, I even when I got the roles that I've gotten over these years, I mean, I'm still probably too young to play everything I've, current, I've already played. Mm. Like, mm. I was a young Edna Turnblad and I was a young Tenardier, the young Herod, but that's who I'm, I'm always going to play someone in their late 40s to 50s. <laughs> so I'd, I'd be glad that at least I've got another 15 years to, to play all those roles again because I could do them again in 10 years. It wouldn't matter because I was quite young playing all of them. Mm. I mean, I don't know how... Edna was supposed to be 50 but and I was 30. But, um, yeah, but I, I've certainly played odd roles. But Cupid... That one, that one hurt me immeasurably because... It was the first time I'd really thought, okay, I'm going to go to a commercial season with this. And I was in a principal role. It was a really good part. And I'd really shaped it. I'd given it lots of jokes and I'd come up with lots of business. And it was all there. And then they got rid of it all. And I remember I went to see it. I shouldn't have gone. Shouldn't have gone. Advice. Don't go. When you're being fired, don't go. (laughs) Um, So I went to the show. And I had to go wait at stage door for Margie DeFranci to come out because she was playing the lead. And I waited at stage door for Margie. And the director and the writer were both there. And they um, said, Trevor, how did you enjoy it? And I blew up. Oh, no. And I said, well, after seeing it, I have no idea why I was recast, especially with him. That was really good. Well, at least you had closure. Oh, look, it wasn't really. It still made me feel like, shit, I was very upset. And then I left. I was, yeah, it was all devastating. And especially at that age, you just didn't know what to do. And the fact that it happened to me again, like two more times I had parts and then had them taken away before I even got into rehearsals mm. was so frustrating. Um, but Priscilla must have been a, a reward in itself. Well, it was amazing. How did you cope? Because you'd certainly up until that time had never done eight shows a week for it seemed what was the run in Australia two years yeah I did 608 performances so um, maybe uh, the the drag career put you in good stead for um, Mm. longevity of performance but um, how did you cope with that that big run it was hard I think that show especially and they've changed it now so as that my plot doesn't have to get in and out of drag so much. He sort of gets hidden at the back of stages with a with a, a Kubra on to hide the drag makeup and things. But uh, it was a pretty full-on show in terms of the fact that I put my makeup on um, before the show began. Then I would take it off after Go West and I'd be a boy for the next scene or so and then I'd wear a mask and some lips like everyone else did and then I'd go off and then I would at interval have to wax over my eyebrows again at which point we'd glue on male eyebrows and then I'd go on and I'd be a woman and then I'd come off and I'd go back on and I'd be a man I come off, and then I'd have to start building my whole face again. You literally so didn't in the know finale. whether you were Arthur or Martha. Well, exactly, <laughs> and um, it was Tarfa or Errol and Agapi, as <laughs> as my characters were called in in particular scenes. But um, it was hard, and I think to you know, 
it, it was a big show. It was very stressful, and I broke my ankle halfway through it. And that was... Trying to get back into the show after having a broken ankle was tough. Because I couldn't walk in heels like I used to, and it took a lot. And the thing was, I came back much earlier than doctor's recommendations because I didn't want to miss opening night of Melbourne, and they didn't want me to miss opening night of Melbourne. So everyone was pressuring me to be on. And I'd only had the operation four weeks before I was to go. I went on stage, and I was on stage in heels. And the thing was, as, I don't know, people in long runs understand, it gets very frustrating when you've got people off who are there in the building but they can't do particular things. And everyone was very frustrated because, you know, Dean Bryant was the resident director and he kept going, can you please go back into Lay Girls? Like there were some shows when we had so many injuries that there was like young Bernadette and four, four queens instead of eight, you know, like so many people off. And I was like, well, let's put my heels on and I'll try and walk down the staircase without holding onto a banister. And it took me months to be able to do that because you couldn't, my ankle wasn't strong enough to not to walk down some stairs in high heels without holding on to something. But yeah, it was it was full on, and that that really did. That was a stressful show. What I did for love. It literally. <laughs> it was that exactly. Um, now uh, it must have been very gratifying though, because the the cameo of misunderstanding, which opens the show, was mm. um, because of your talents. What I understand it was it was created from that uh, for the opening of the show. It was. Yeah. Um, they had a script, it was very brief, and a different song for Misunderstanding. Because in, in the film, it's um, There's uh, Hugo's, Hugo's really, number yeah. opens the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this was still after that sort of number, but it was like the first time you sort of got spoken to by a Sydney drag. And they literally said, well, Trevor's got the part. And Phil Scott was the script editor, who, of course, had worked with me for only at that time only three years isn't that funny and now we're celebrating you know 15 years of working together um but three years we'd been working so he knew how to write for me he rewrote the entire monologue it became a lot longer the song changed to be tina turner because they knew i did tina and so the whole thing was literally retooled to be me and to be a version of of Cleo, I guess, but um, it was fun. It was nice and very flattering. And um, now they butchered it. No, it's just different. It's very different now. But I, I got the pleasure. It was very special. I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages. Don't forget to investigate other Stages podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and artists about their careers, processes, and what matters to them. Leading lady of the Australian stage, Geraldine Turner, reflects on the challenge and responsibility of leading a company, often on a long tour. The place I should be in, in leading the company. I've always led the company, but, you know, I've been a brat sometimes too. And, you know, as far my as private leading life. Leading by example. Yeah, my private life has taken over and I've been, you know, quite mad. But, but at times. But that's still, a, a mature, is that earlier in your career? Oh, I that's suppose so. I'm thing, certainly not that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now. But um, yeah, um, I think I've always had that ability to 
lead a company and I don't even know what that is, what the definition of that is, but I think I do have that. And I, I'm very much aware, I'm very inclusive and want everyone in the cast to be great and I'm not one of those people who I'm the leading person and I don't care about anyone else and I'm not giving you a moment, you know, I can't stand those sorts of performance. In Jerry Springer, the opera. Oh, of course, Jerry, at the but Opera House. At yeah. the Opera House. Yeah. That was only a, a two week run, which was really fun. Had a great time. Yeah, now, now um, about to appear on Broadway. Yes, mm. again. Well, for the first time actually on Broadway, but the first, um, but it's a great show. Mm. I love doing it. Um, Hairspray, you, you seem to take uh, a lot of people by surprise. Yes, when you were cast as Edna, mm. a role created by Harvey Feinstein on, um, on Broadway, of course, as, as being. Um, a 30-year-old Edna. Um, that must have been gratifying as well to um, knock off a few significant people who were yeah, up for the role. Yeah. It was a big old audition process. Tell us about the audition process. It was you. hard, that one. That one was a tough one. And um, Lynn Ruthven wouldn't see me. She refused completely. She so said, she, she cast a lot of commercial musicals yes. in Australia. And she said, I don't want some drag queen in this role. That was and her That's response. what you're fighting against, I suppose. Yeah. You know, um, a lot of people pigeonhole performers and perhaps you were seen as a, a drag performer because of your career as mm. Cleopatra and then in Priscilla. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she said no. And I rang Max Lambert and I said, Max, I really want an audition for this. I need to get an audition for Edna Turnblad. Max was the... Max was musical, musical supervisor. supervisor right? And he said, well, tell Lynn that I told her, told you that, that you must come in. I said, okay. So my agent told her that, and she said, I don't believe you. But see, what I'm seeing now is this chutzpah, which, you know, and this drive mm. where you're not going to take no. No. You, you, that belief in yourself mm. to, get, to get you seen. And then we had to, when she said no again, I had to call Max again, and he had to call her and say, give him an audition. So I picked Timeless to Me, the... Um, yeah, the duet. The duet. Uh, not Timeless to Me, sorry. I picked You'll Never Get Away From Me from Gypsy yeah. because it sounds a lot like Timeless to Me. So I've done this whole You'll Never Get Away From Me and I did it like Edna would have done it, you know, to, to Wilbur. That was my thought. So they enjoyed that and they said, okay, and David Atkins and Max Lambert and um, Jason Coleman were all there. And Lynn. And um, the Max started going, right, now do some Liza for David. He's not senior Liza. And thank God Michael Tyak was on the piano and he'd just finished the season of Liza. David Atkins, of course, the director. The director. Yeah, yeah. And David, so I end up doing two numbers as Liza. Then they asked me to do Judy. Then they said... Oh, go and do... What else have you got in your books? I'd like... I did a 35-minute concert. At which point they said, wait outside. And um, Lynn came out and was so thrilled. And she was like, oh, I've got all this Edna material for you. Come back next week. And so I went back and I did it again. I did all the Edna material. And then I came back again. I think we're at number three now. And still not in drag, still doing Edna. I don't think I was paired with anyone. Fourth time back in drag. 
they said, come in in character. So I came in, I went to the Kmart and I bought a nightie and I had a fat suit and I wore my fat suit and I had a wig done with rollers in it and I came in and did her in costume, well, my version of costume. And that worked and then they said, right, now you have to come down to the to Mooney Ponds, to the Clock Tower Theatre. That sounds like a good omen, Dame Edna's home Dame Edna's suburb. home suburb and we want you at the finals. And at the finals it was a an eight-hour day and I showed up at 9am to put my own makeup on. They had a makeup artist there to do the other Edna's who, when I say makeup artist, was very much in inverted commas. She gave them a light dusting and stuck a false eyelash on them and thought that was drag makeup. Well, you know, they didn't want drag, drag makeup. They wanted you to look as natural as possible. But the thing is, to look as natural as possible in drag, you wear even more makeup to make you look as girly as you can. So I, of course, did my own face. But I don't know how many of these people I'm allowed to reveal. Probably, probably none. Probably not, but there were seven very well-known, six very well-known people and me. Mm. And the day began around 10, 10.30, and it started, and we are all in costume. I had my nightie from Kmart on. They'd brought some moo-moos for the other boys. And it began, and there were all these Tracys and all these links and all these, you know, it was just like in and out and in and out. And the thing is, David Atkins likes to audition on a stage. So he sits like chorus line at the back of the room right. and you go on stage and audition for David. And I'd been through this with him before because I was down to the last two for Rolling Fame when I was 18. Oh, yes, right. And so when I'd done my Fame auditions, we were doing them at the footbridge and I'd have to walk. He'd walk down and be on the stage in theatre lighting. He wanted to see how you were on stage. And so that's what we did for Hairspray. And beautiful Grant Pirro who ended up playing my husband, was there. And I was teamed with him a lot, and we kept going in and doing scenes together. Um, and the rest, they say, is history. And Yeah, and but then everyone else got cast, and I was... I had not been cast, and I hadn't heard a thing, and I was waiting and waiting. And Marnie McQueen got the role, and she called me, and she said, have you heard Treasury? And I'm like, no. She said, you'll get it, you'll get it. And um, I found out much later that it was David Atkins who went into bat for me. So they wanted a star. And David said, no, just Trevor's too good in the part. You can't not let him do it. He has to do it. And he went into bat with the producers and won. How wonderful is that? Because so many times in, in commercial musicals in Australia we see names or people who can book bars on seats of that, rather yeah. than people who can necessarily serve the role mm. so so that's fantastic of Atkins too that was uh, great he really working. him and Max really just supported me and also I think Jason because he, Jason wanted Edna to be able to dance and move and do all this thing and the thing was there was a lot of big fat men who were auditioning for this part who couldn't move you know and, and Jason's vision was to make it you know I mean our, our production was so different to the Broadway and it was so the Edna's on Broadway walked around a bit, did a couple of hand movements, and that was their quarry. But they really wanted to do fantasy ballets and all of this sort of stuff where Edna suddenly could go from 
not being able to move very well to moving fabulously in her own fantasy, and that's what we were able to achieve. Quite ingenious to do to, for your selection of um, uh, audition material with um, "You'll Never Get Away from Me." Yeah, I heard an interview with um, um, Faith Prince once, who oh, yeah. was talking about getting the role of Miss Adelaide in that uh, revival of Guys and Dolls with Nathan Lane. God, that must be twenty years ago now. Oh. Um, and um, uh, she went in with um, something wonderful from The King and I, Lady Tiana yeah, song. fabulous. But did it as Adelaide. Yeah. He will not always say what you would have him say. Which, which I think is, is fantastic. I mean, if you're auditioning for a show, you don't necessarily want to do a number from the show. But if you can find something which is, is similar in tone, yeah. in tone um, it's great. Exactly. And I think that's the key. But, I mean, look. The nice thing is I, I haven't done many auditions since then, as crazy as that sounds, but I, I haven't actually auditioned for any show since now where I've had to sing something else. What I will still never get over, and this is one of those pinch-me moments, when Cameron McIntosh cast you as Tenardio, and the thing that... I, I found a lot of stuff after the fact, you know, but... Um, Cameron came to see me do Little Orphan Trashley at the Opera House. He'd never seen me perform before, and his husband had seen me perform. And he said, you must come, we'll go see Trevor. And, of course, Cameron owns the rights to Annie. So there we are doing a complete piss take of Annie. Cameron roared, thought it was the most hilarious thing. Um, and next thing you know, I got a phone call. Did you come in for Tenardio? Okay. Now, for a man who can come and see me dressed as a 12-year-old orphan with a red curly wig and the dress and the whole thing to look like, you know, to look like Annie, um, and come and see that and go, God, he'd be good to Nadio. He's a visionary. He knows. And the thing was, which I only found out way after, I'm like, well, why was I stressing so much in these auditions? Was that... Cameron had given orders to the director, directors, two of them, that if if I was at all capable, I had the part. That they just had to make me have the part. That was their directive. They were just told, that's who I want, so make it work. And they did workshop. I would go in and my auditions for Les Mis were very different because... They kept saying to me, these aren't auditions, Trevor, this is just a workshop. And they'd bring me in for an hour and we'd do the songs and they'd direct it like they direct the show. And I'd do it like exactly like the show. And they said, great. After a couple of sessions with them, they said, right, if you do that, Cameron's in the next one. If you do it exactly like that for Cameron, you're going to have no problems. And I had to remember everything they told me because, of course, it was, you know, you're in an audition situation, you don't have time to write anything down, you can't do anything like that. You just had to retain what they'd said to you. And so I did it again, I hopefully, and then, you know, Lara came in and read with me and that was it. We were the Tenardiers. And did you have your eye on it prior to...? I knew I'd want to do it, yeah. I'd been singing Master of the House from when I was 10. So I thought, oh, if that comes up, I'd love to play him. He's hideous and great. It's a good part. But then, you know, when Gail called and asked me to do Superstar, that was great. 
Gail Edwards. Yeah. Yeah. When Gail Edwards called and said, come and do Jesus Christ Superstar as Herod, that was nice. That was a um, nice moment. All those things. I like it when they see me in that way. It yeah. is nice. Yeah. It is nice to be seen like that. So, yeah. so where did it all start? Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Bexley. Um in the south of Sydney, not that far south, but south enough. Um, and um, I went to Johnny Gunn Talent School because I all I ever wanted to do was perform. From the first moment you Yeah, like literally, I, there's no moment where I don't know. I, Mum said I knew exactly what I wanted to do from the time I could speak. It was all I wanted. Sing, dance, act, whatever. I just had to be on stage. And so she had to find somewhere for me to go because she really didn't know, but we watched Young Town Time, so we went to Johnny Young Town School. So there's no theatrical personality Nobody, in your family? No, no one at all. No. It's very hard because I didn't know anyone. So what were the influences um, of Johnny Young? Uh, Young Talent Time was, yeah. was big on television every Sunday night at yep. the time. What other influences do you remember um, happening at the time? Um, my mother and my grandfather used to go to musical theatre all the time. Granddad loves shows. So basically the whole, you know, doing, um, uh, listening to Broadway recordings was amazing. Well, that, that's, so do, that's do you remember a cast recording that you had on repeat? Cats. Was that the first big... Cats. Yeah, yeah. With Deborah Byrne, where they released the Australian cast recording, and I went to see it, and I was five. And um, it was crazy, so I had Cats on repeat. Now, you got to meet her afterwards, didn't you? I got to meet her after Les Mis. Les Mis when I was ten. Not nine, actually, nine. And Mum had organised for me to go and meet Deb. Um, she'd written a letter and said, my son's obsessed with Lamy's. I'd had a hernia operation when I was seven or eight. And, um, what causes a hernia in a seven-year-old? I was born with one and they didn't oh. realise, so I had to have a hernia operation. Oh. Hideous. Um, so I had this hernia operation. And my special gift from my parents when I came home from the hospital was a double cassette of Lamy's. And that had just come out. And so, of course, I was obsessed. Where, what about training as a child? I, I know mm. Shopfront Theatre was, shop was big, yeah. So that was um, a youth theatre company in the western suburbs of Sydney? Or uh, where, in Carlton. Where? No, no, Carlton? no, just right. um, south, just near me. Right. Um, and I went there from age five through 15. Right. Um, every weekend, my mother had basically dropped me off there on a Saturday morning, picked me up on Saturday evening. She'd be calling Shopfront going, has anyone seen Trevor? I'm like, we'll go out and we'll find him. Go out from the office and find out where I was. But I'd be there doing something. I'd be doing a show or I'd be in the wardrobe room or I'd be whatever. And basically for 10 years, I just grew up there. I was there all the time. I did shows there. They nurtured my creativity and, and let me be whoever I wanted if uh, I learnt sound I learnt lighting I learnt how to rig lights I learnt how to operate a lighting board I learnt how to video edit on beta cassettes like I did the full edit suite I learnt how to do um I did a lot I did tons of stuff there but you're a performer then, without any formal training except yeah. that, that, that you, those youth experiences yeah. which and then you graduate to 
uh, a few amateur shows. Yeah. Which is a great way to, on that, that yeah. hands-on learning, yeah. that, that sort of on-the-spot learning, which is good. And then I never really, I, my mother said, you should audition for NIDA. And I didn't. I said, okay, if anything, I'm going to go and do musical arranging at the conservatorium in terms of a degree. And I didn't get in. I think I got in on a second round off it, but I was shitty that they hadn't let me in on the first go. So I went, well, if they don't want me, then I'm not going. And um, I ended up saying to mum, well, if I, I'm going to have the year after high school off. And if I'm not getting any work, then I'll go and audition for Whopper and I'll go and audition for NIDA and I'll go and do all those things. But work happened. And I was there and I was working. And that was it. I just went, well, I'm busy. I'm doing stuff. Yeah. So, so I just kept going. Don't forget, there are many more interviews available from The Stages podcast, including this one from Stuart Green, theatre historian and bar manager at many of our live theatre venues and cinemas. Stuart has worked in theatres for the past 40 years and has a myriad of tales about the folk who have adorned the stages and behind the scenes. Even the last years of the match, uh, the dancers, the people like we used to get, we had no green room at the Majesty's. You remember the downstairs bar? That yep. was that the was green the room. Gathering place. So when you had a musical in like 42nd Street, you'd have 40 in the cast, you'd have 60 week backstage, 30 piece in the orchestra, 30 piece orchestra, uh, and they'd all be out at the bar afterwards. So we'd be talking theatre all night. It was like going out every night. It wasn't like working. Working at Her Majesty's for 27 years was like going out every night for 27 years. Um, and the same with the Royal, but the Royal didn't have the bar, the bar wasn't open afterwards, so it was like party time. Yeah. And you could talk theatre all night. To anyone? Yeah. And they stayed there, and yeah. it was great. Yeah, but... Well, I, I know that you worked with the great Tommy Tico. Yes. Which, uh, what did he teach you? Tommy, the way I met Tommy was from, I did this thing called the Music Theatre and Cabaret Performer Training Seminar that was run by Janice Light and her partner, uh, her husband, Ian. Ian Love, Ian, Janice and Ian, Janice and Ian, yep. Um, and they ran this amazing workshop and I went to it when I was 14 and 15 and 16. And um, Tommy was the special mentor, I guess. And you could win a scholarship to work with Tommy and I didn't win one, and I was very upset. So I thought I'd done a great audition for his scholarship. And they said afterwards, oh, Tommy wants to speak to you. And he said, I didn't give you this scholarship because you didn't, you don't need this. You need long-term, like, support. So you're just going to come over to my house and I'm just going to work with you on whatever you want to work on. So after school on a Wednesday, I used to get the bus all the way to Bellevue Hill. I used to go to Tommy's house. We'd go in the front room and he'd play piano for me and I'd sing a number and then he'd put a medley together for me for my new act and he'd play me reel-to-reels of Peter Allen and him performing together at the at the entertainment centre and the first ever recording of I Still Call Australia Home and then I was writing arrangements myself and he would say bring bring the charts what you've written this week and I'd have an assignment to write a new chart 
each week. And I'd write a chart and I'd bring it in to Tommy and he'd correct them for me and show me what I was doing wrong with my voicings. And I mean, amazing. I did for years. And that's an amazing set of skills which you've been able to carry forward into your career. Mm. I mean, the amount of times you've had to arrange something yeah. for yourself or for a concert or yeah. has been extraordinary. What a... And it's still great that, like, as I get arrangements in right now for this big gala at um, Mardi Gras, um, I get sent a, a full score and I can sit there and literally go back and give notes to the arranger on what I'm thinking is missing or, you know, or not. So it's pretty great. The shows that you've created um, where you are... Well, I'm talking about the Shirley Bassey show, yeah. the Liza Minnelli show, yeah. which are, are great uh, valentines to uh, to those lovely, those magnificent women yeah. who have been performers. Um, you've taken those shows on yourself. You've you've written, you've devised, you've created, you've yeah, musically with arranged yeah, 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 yeah. With, with other people, of course, mm. etc. Uh, but they've taken you all around the world. Yeah, it's quite amazing, really. Uh. Um, you know, being able to perform. I've done gay cruises across the world. I've done the West End. I've done London. I've done Edinburgh. I've done Vienna. Yeah. I've done Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. Um, it's quite crazy to think yeah. that it's so the, amazing. The content is quite arch at times. Yes. I think, but but there's no no doubt that they're a, a loving tribute to, mm. obviously, to performers who um, hover largely in... Uh, in, in your in my love life, of performance. Yeah, certainly, yeah. yeah. I love them so much. And, I mean, even the other week, I was just in New York a couple of weeks ago and I got up and I sang with Billy Stritch. And Billy's been Liza's musical director for 20 years. And to get up and sing with Billy, and he said, what should we do? I said, oh, ring them bells, should we do ring them bells? And I have a running joke in my show where I always turn around and say, Ladies and gentlemen, at the piano, Mr. Billy Stritch. And I will do that every time, no matter who it is. But the other night in New York, it was the first time I've actually done that joke, and it was Billy Stritch sitting there. So, I mean, that's pretty special. But to have him and, and Jim Caruso, who runs um, this night at Birdland, who's also one of Liza's dearests, the two of them both say to me, it's like you know her. It's if you, she talks like how you talk as her in her lounge room, but she won't do it on stage. But it's just that. But that's how I imagine that she talks. But they say that it's it's scary, scary. Have Dame Shirley Eliza? That do they know of the shows? Have I don't. You, I think Eliza knows of. I definitely know Dame Shirley knows. And I know that Dame Shirley's watched clips. Because, of course, you've been, uh, again, in your producing role, being able to arrange deals with Foxtel, where you've recorded a concert yeah. and that's been broadcast. So yeah. uh, as, have their reviews been positive? I've never heard anything officially, but I've not heard anything bad, so <laughs> I'm assuming that's OK. If they're not trying to shut me down, those actual women... Then I'm okay, I think. Um, I know that Cher is going to appear at the Mardi Gras Gala. She is. She up. also knows of me. Right. I did an Atlantis cruise and Kathy Griffin was on. Right. And Kathy saw me do Cher doing Titanium. 
um, which I do as one of my silly shared doing other people's songs numbers. And um, Kathy in her act said, so I was here the other night, there was this drag queen from Australia who was doing share, so I called her. And I told her all about this drag queen doing titanium as her. She said, I said to Sherry, you should do that song. You'd be great. If he sings it like you sing it, you'd be great. But it's made me laugh lately. Have you seen the Mamma Mia 2? Yes, yes, she pops up. See, my favourite is, like, literally, if I was going to do a parody of Cher singing Fernando, it would be, There was something in the air that now the stars were bound Fernando. (laughs) And you know what's crazy? It's exactly how she sounds on that trailer. It's actually nuts. Right. And, like, that's exactly how I'd sing it if I was her. Yeah. But it's just so funny that you go... God, they're predictable now, aren't they? You've also created and performed to great success a series series of pantomimes. Yes. Um, starting with Black Swan, going through Little Orphan Trashley, yeah. uh, most recently with uh, the, the Body Bag. I mean, I must say, they're all vulgar, they're yeah. all crude, Shocking. they're all totally offensive, yeah. but very, very funny. Yes. Great entertainment. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, uh, you must enjoy those. I have a great time doing the pantos. The pantos are something completely different. And I mean, I think this is the other thing too, that it's hard. People often go, oh, well, what are we going to do? You're you're overexposing your brand. But I think there are people who come and see me do the Liza show, for example, who wouldn't necessarily come and see the body bag. And there are people who see the body bag who would never come and see Liza. They just want to, they want to go for a laugh. And, um... The pantos I love because they're a, it's a play, really. Yeah. It's my own musical with completely unoriginal music. But um, there's so much fun to put together and to perform and to make people laugh like that. I mean, it's just nuts mm. how much you can get away with. Yeah. Um, look, you're, you're a performer who gives a tremendous lot back to, the, to various... Uh, organisations and audiences with your uh, charity galas. We'll talk about those in a minute. Yeah. But, but I know with the Pantos, um, a little orphan Trashley, that ori- had an original name yeah. of Tranny. Yeah. And that got you in a lot of hot water. Oh, yeah. Was that disheartening? It was. It was tough because, look, at the time, it, well, I'd always use that word, well, we'd all... My friends who were transsexual... Um, had used that word often that tranny was not a derogatory dirty word yeah. for for them. They they were like, oh yeah, is that a is she a drag or a tranny? Oh, it's a tranny. Oh, well, there you go. God, she looks fabulous or whatever you know. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it was never um, to me. And there's there just seemed to be this movement from the trans community that um, that it was a dirty word and uh, it shouldn't be used. And I was shocked. I was shocked more though that. You know, people were that people were so offended and upset by it. It was probably a time where I thought that it was going to be. I don't know. It was a transitional period, and I mean, I had to. I had to. Speaking of trans, a transitional period where I had to. We had to respond. We had to change it. Not as funny the title. Still funnier as tranny because it was that. But, you know, I'm sure we'll probably go through another phase of language where it becomes okay again, or maybe it never will. Who knows? I mean, it's like one of those things where 
I remember at the time, people I got death threats and all that shit. And that, that, was that that serious? Yeah. yeah. Um, we had to have secu- like plain clothes security there on the first night of the show. And, oh, it was a nightmare. Um, but the fact is, I got trolled so badly. But then they were saying things like, "Would you ever do a show called Pufta, the musical?" And I was like, "Yeah." Would you do faggot? The yeah, I would. That's the thing. I would. Well, you own it, and you sort of you desensitise the um, the power know. of that uh, negative. Yeah. Thing. Look, I mean, I don't think probably I could get away now with the material that I did in that. I think mm. people are way too. It's changed, and and the uh, trans issues have become such a big um, focus, and I think that they would have. Yeah, I think you're right in recognising it was a transitional period and you just got caught up in the middle of that but but how wonderful now that our transsexual brothers and sisters uh, have the um, the forefront that they do yeah and the platform and and, you know there's so much I mean it was before Caitlyn Jenner it was before any of that stuff so I mean there was a big change about to happen and I think I was just sort of slightly ahead of that change Mm. and that's where it confused everyone but we also got trolled a lot from America and I think that was the thing that's hard is that you end up with these and this is a problem with keyboard warriors and, and the internet, is that the people in America have no idea what I've done for charities and the trans community and all of those things over all my years in Australia. Mm. Um, yeah, just, yeah. Um, so, so, look, I've worked with you on a few occasions with your charity galas. You've mm. done a World AIDS Day concert for many years. Yeah. You created the... Um, the, the concert for Orlando yeah. um, a, a couple of years back. That must be incredibly satisfying. And you must have a very influential Teledex. I have a very good Rolodex. It's I've, like... I, I've never known someone who's been able to pull together in such a short amount of time the performers, the musicians, the venue um, to create you know, bringing great funds for those those vital charities. Yeah, and look, I love it. And I do really enjoy it. I love a gala. Love to put on a gala and have lots of variety and lots of different things in the well, re- show. Well, recently we said goodbye to Hats Off after 20-something so, years. Yeah. Yeah, 20, 20 years. years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's certainly not the end of charity galas no. uh, in Sydney. Yeah. No, I would love it to see somebody else come up with something, though, because I've done them for a very long time now. I mean, and that's a funny thing, Pete. It was like when I was doing... I was directing Hats Offs when I was 23 and 24. I mean, what mm. the hell were they thinking? Mm. Why were they letting me do that? But they did. It was nice. So I really do like being in control of everything. I must be a complete control freak, but I do really enjoy being the producer as well as, you know, as well as the star. I like knowing how it's going. I love booking the band. I like having that, you know, that intimacy with everybody and every person who's working on my show mm. I, I've the few time well the, the past few years when I've had management who was sort of taking care of all of that I've actually missed seeing missed knowing what the hell's going on I feel like I'd be so in the dark so now I, I'm much happier sort of running all of that myself and knowing what's happening and, and, and being a part of it from the ground up. Yeah. I prefer that. I mean, sometimes I need to clone myself. Like, between now and next week, I probably need two or three of me just to get everything done. But, mm. you know, mm. you do it. You've achieved considerable success in a variety of fields. What are you reaching for? What, what would you consider as your ultimate win? 
Not sure yet. Is that a movie? Is that a, a run in a Broadway musical? Is that I would a... love to make it to Broadway. That would make me very happy. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know what it is because I I get as much joy from a show that I've directed that's wonderful that I do from being the star of. So I I think it'll be interesting and maybe one day it'll it'll become apparent, but yeah. <laughs> Trev, thanks for coming in and chatting on stages. I've, I've had a great time and um, I'm sure our listeners have. Oh, too. good. Okay. Yay!